0: Today's scripture is Psalm one thirty one. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together this morning. Jesus, that is our prayer this morning, uh, that we would be quiet and still before you. But we confess, Lord, that that is not something uh, that we are uh, good at. It does not come naturally to us. And so help us this morning, Lord. Help us to calm, help us to quiet our spirit that we might hear what you want to speak to us. Um, by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. It's good to be with you. Uh, Psalm 131 is our text this morning, and it's nice and short. Three verses. Uh, Psalm 131, if you paid attention to the subtitle, is a song of ascent. A song of ascent. And it's found in the part of the Psalter uh, with 14 other psalms uh, that the people of God uh, would sing uh, one after the other as they made their way up to Jerusalem. And so picture this with me, if you will, that three times a year, the people of God would gather and they would walk up towards Jerusalem and they would sing these songs one after the other as they made their way to these great uh, worship festivals. During this time, they would remind themselves of the promises that God had made to them. It was during this time that they would remind themselves of the hope that they have. It's during this time going up to Jerusalem that they would remind themselves of, of just who they are, of who they are. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he, he wrote a book on these songs of ascent, and he says this, this picture of, of Hebrews singing these 15 psalms as they left the routines of discipleship and made their way from towns and villages farms and cities, as pilgrims up to Jerusalem, has become embedded in the Christian devotional image. It is our best background for understanding life as a faith journey. Uh, Peterson goes on to call these psalms, Songs for the Road, Songs for the Road. Uh, just recently in our series in Daniel, uh, we learned to our joy and excitement that we are sojourners, And exiles and and strangers in this world. If you're a follower of Jesus, those are all titles uh, that apply to you. We want to add to that list this morning that we're also pilgrims. We are people uh, who have not yet arrived. We're on a journey and we will not arrive until the return of King Jesus. Psalm 131, though, in particular, is this song for pilgrims on their way like you and I. And this psalm, I want to say, is a diagnostic tool. A diagnostic tool. Now, now remember with me, if you will, if you're a young person here, this will be difficult. I want to talk about something called a desktop computer. It's this crazy thing. It probably weighs about 50 pounds. And it goes on top of your desk. And it sits there, and beside it is a tower that also weighs 50 pounds. And this is what you do. You put a a CD in that tower, which is not something else. It's entirely foreign and and strange. And growing up, I had one of these. And and we had allotted times. There were four kids in my family. I had my allotted time. I would go on my desktop computer. I would chat on MSN. I know I'm aging myself here. I would chat on MSN, and I would run Windows 94. Yeah, mm. (laughs) that's right, premier program. Now, I was a peculiar child, which will make sense to some of you who know me. Uh, I was a peculiar child, and, and I like everything just so. Like, if, if our sticker in the top left corner of our car, like, for the oil change, is like one kilometer over what we should be, I'm like, the car's going to blow up. That's it. We have to get this changed now. We have to do this. I, I I like things just so, and maybe you can relate to me. If so, we're having a moment this morning. Yeah? Some people can relate this morning. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that was a bit aggressive. But this peculiarity—it started at a young age—and so during my time, I had like 30 minutes, and for 10 minutes of my allotted time each day, or, or whenever it was, I ran a diagnostic pr- uh, program on our computer. It's one of my favorite things to do. Again, I was a weird, weird, weird child. But this is what you do—you would click diagnose, and I don't know how if this even works. But you would click diagnose, it would run the program, it would show you the viruses that are there. People are nodding their heads like, yeah, I remember this. And then you would click deal with them, right? And there is nothing more satisfying than clicking that deal with them button, right? And they're just gone like that, right? That was just, oh, I love that. It was, it was, it was like water to my soul. Psalm 131, here's the link. Right, what is that story about? Psalm 131 is like this diagnostic program, except it's not for a computer or or Windows 94. It's a diagnostic program on our hearts. Psalm 131 finds those things that make us sick, and particularly those things that make us uh, discontent, and it tells us how to deal with them. And to see it, we're going to break it down really simply. Uh, Three verses, uh, three points. Verse one, renouncing pride, verse two, finding contentment, and verse three, uh encouraging hope. Let's read Psalm 131, verse 1 again. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David, the writer of our psalm, after examining his heart, he finds that his heart, his, his soul, the, 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 the center of operation in his life is, is quiet. It's still. Notice, before we get into how the stillness was achieved, how this stillness was, was not achieved. The quiet of Psalm 131, the quiet of David this morning, was not achieved uh, through personal detachment or retirement. This is not sort of, you know, his 60-plus piece. David was not a recluse. David was intimately involved in the political, social, worshiping life of the people of God. David was quite literally a a kingdom builder. Notice this David's stillness was not achieved by simply adopting a more easygoing attitude. Uh, often I, I'm frustrated with myself because I come back home from vacation and, and we unpack our bags and it seems as if the attitude that was like gone for the past 10 days, that like, you know, like I was just relaxed and calm and peaceful, it seems like the anxiety of life and stress just comes right back. And I might as well have not taken a vacation. I don't think simply trying to change our disposition will work in the long haul. Notice, David's stillness, David's quiet, was not achieved uh, through sugarcoating or altogether avoiding hard situations. Uh, David isn't keeping his head down and choosing the path of least resistance. If David's quiet contentment in his soul isn't achieved through retirement or personality modification or self-deception, then how? How does he have this? And is this not the question of our age? How do we get, how do we live into, how do we experience some sort of inner peace, some sort of inner quiet? And if you go on the internet right now, there are literally millions of options for you to pursue to achieve inner peace, inner quiet, some degree of contentment. Literally. I I spent some time this week, it was a wasted afternoon, looking at these different options. This is the question of our age. Everyone has an answer, but David's answer this morning runs a bit contrary to our natural assumption. See, all four lines of verse 1 point to David's quiet contentment, his stillness, his inner peace, uh, his, his... being sound in spirit. They, they point to David achieving this firstly through his renouncing of pride. David killed his pride. In other words, uh, David culti- uh, cultivated uh, humility. humility. Look back at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. He does not think more of himself than he ought. O oh Lord, my eyes are not raised too high. He does not think less of people than he ought. And to summarize, humility is a right understanding of ourselves and others before God. Humility is a right understanding of ourselves and others in the face of God, in, in light of who He is. And one author said this, Humility simply acknowledges our many sins and limitations, and it responds with, I need Jesus, and I need other people. If we want to be content, humility is a good place to start. And so the driven amongst us say, okay, how do I achieve humility? I've got to be more humble. I need opportunities to demonstrate my humility. And I actually don't think humility works that way. You know, there's this famous story that's, that's probably untrue of the time that Mic, uh, Michelangelo was asked when sculpting David, like, Michelangelo, how did you sculpt David, right? That's the statue of the naked guy, if you need some context here. Uh, how did you sculpt David? How, how did you do that? And, and apparently, again, likely untrue, uh, apparently uh, Michelangelo responded, I, I simply looked at, at what didn't belong, at what wasn't David, what was un." David, and, and, and I just chipped away at it. I got rid of what didn't belong. I think the principle of that story is helpful here. If you and I want to experience the quiet contentment of David, it won't come about because we sought out ways to demonstrate our humility, Right? which, which oftentimes just is just more pride in our life. Look how humble I am, right? It Does, doesn't really work like that. No, it will come about because we actively sought out our own pride to kill it, to renounce it. And since this is a diagnostic psalm, let's ask some diagnostic questions intended to kill or renounce our pride. Now I have to pause here for a second because in the humor of the Lord, I I wrote some examples like earlier on this week, some example questions And I found myself guilty of every single one of these things uh, the following six days. And so, uh, yeah, this is my garbage too. Diagnostic questions. When we find ourselves angrily switching lanes and cursing other drivers in traffic, is it because the world is not operating according to our pleasures and conveniences? When we have a low-grade annoyance in every conversation where we are doing more listening than talking, is it because the person is not clamoring for your wisdom? When we engage in negative self-talk, in fearfulness, in timidity, when we are easily offended, is this just not another manifestation of pride in our life, right? Is this not just pride failing, pride intimidated, pride despairing? These are good diagnostic questions to ask ourselves. They're hard ones. Uh, Another pastor, a guy named Dave Harvey, uh, gives us a good example of of a diagnostic question we can ask as to whether or not we are proud in relation to our community, uh, whether our eyes are raised too high. And he asks this, One great measure of our humility is whether we can be ambitious for someone else's agenda. Not just tolerate and accommodate the goals of those over us, but adopt their vision, promote, and pursue their dreams. Our willingness to make others a success is a great measure of the purity of our ambitions. Humility begins when we actively, actively, and aggressively renounce pride in the way we think about ourselves and other people. But humility also has legs. Humility also does. Notice what David writes at the end of verse 1. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now let's pause for a second. My, my first response to this verse is sort of like the guy, you know, the classic guy, like in the basement playing video games, and like, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, you know? I'm just going to let my mom do my laundry, and I'm 35 years old, and, you know, I'm just going to let, you know, I'm not going to occupy myself with these things too hard, you know? I'm just going to keep an easygoing life here, right? This is not the lazy man's life verse, right? I do not occupy myself with things too great and, and too marvelous for me, right? Now, while that image of sort of the, the overgrown adult in his parents' basement might be funny, uh, don't we, don't we see laziness masquerading as contentment all the time? Don't we? I think we do. How many of us who posture ourselves as content uh, really simply can't be bothered to dig any deeper? Too busy are fine with living in the here and now, living in the moment at the cost of eternity. So this isn't the lazy man's life verse. Further, this text isn't down on hard work. It's not down on hard work. As we already saw, David David was a kingdom builder, right? But David had humble ambition, humble ambition, David wasn't trying to be God in his work. He wasn't working for David's glory. He wasn't working to distinguish himself from his other people. He wasn't living comparatively in his career. In other words, he wasn't looking inward or outward in his work, only upward. Humble ambition, the kind that David has, asks questions like this. How has God Made me. How has God specially gifted, impassioned, and equipped me? How might I best please God in the work I do? How might God be made much of? How might this contribute to the furthering of God's kingdom and not Jake's kingdom? Humble ambition looks like what Paul describes in Philippians 3 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's humble ambition. So, if verse one isn't a lazy man's life verse or down on hard work, what is David saying? What is he saying? I think David is down on and and opposed to what we could call uh, unruly ambition. Unruly ambition. Again, Eugene Peterson, he's helpful here. He says this Our culture encourages and rewards ambition without qualification. We are surrounded by a way of life in which betterment is understood as expansion, as acquisition, as fame. There is nothing recent about the temptation, it is the oldest sin in the book the one that got Adam thrown out of the garden and Lucifer tossed out of heaven, what is fairly new about it is the general admiration and approval that it receives. If you have been involved with a startup, if you're an entrepreneur of any kind, you know you know that it's an accepted and celebrated fact that to truly launch a successful business, to to truly do this, uh, to launch a business that investors want to pour money into, the founder must be all in. All in. Uh, Andrew Mason, uh, he's the founder, former CEO of Groupon. Uh, He he once uh, admitted that the people who tell other entrepreneurs that they simply had to get better with time management and, and you can actually have it all, the, the people who say that are all lying. Andrew Mason, this, this founder, uh, CEO, former CEO of Groupon, has said, you can't have it all. It will cost you everything. If you want to be successful, truly successful, it will cost you everything. There is no excess time. And we, as a culture, don't we celebrate and romanticize this? right? We watch the Steve Jobs biopic, and we hear the stories of him in his garage working, you know, 13, 14 hours a day, and we hold it up as our mythology. These are the gods of our day. They can work 120-hour work weeks, and they never get tired. Their vision is, is, is limitless. They have an answer to every human problem, right? We, we don't need God. We can do it ourselves. We can also think of it like this. Humble ambition, as opposed to unruly ambition, humble ambition doesn't try to grasp the omnis of God. Uh, Brett said this before, but it's worth repeating. Humble ambition doesn't try to make ourselves omnipresent. Humble ambition recognizes we can be in one place, at one time. And that one place and that one time is exactly where the Lord would have us. Humble ambition doesn't try to make ourselves omniscient, doesn't try to make ourselves all-knowing. We recognize that we are finite in our knowledge. Some of us more finite than others. But God knows everything, past, present, and future. And so we do not create an anxious tizzy inside of ourselves, knowing only God knows what will happen. And humble ambition doesn't try to make ourselves omnipotent. Humble ambition recognizes our limitations and embraces them. It recognizes the the limitations of the power we have to produce results, to to be successful, uh, to be known, and so here's another diagnostic question, because this text is full of them. Does your ambition look more like the unruly kind or the humble kind? This quest for, for quiet contentment begins with renouncing pride, uh, pride in, in, in how we view ourselves. A pride in how we view ourselves in community comparatively to other people. A pride in how we view our work, what what we do. Humble ambition, rather, sorry, contentment begins with renouncing this pride. And in verse 2, we have this, this beautiful picture of that contentment achieved. Look at verse 2 again with me. David writes, But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now we have a, a six-month-old son who, who, by the grace of God, is, is happy most of the time. Most of the time. Uh, if there is one time when he is not happy, it is when he is hungry. And if you've seen how big my six-month-old is, that's often. It's a big kid. But if there's one time uh, he's not happy, uh, it's when He's hungry. And there's this incredible contrast being painted for us here, right? Uh, of like a fussy, uh, angry, discontent, hungry child, and a child who has been weaned, who has been fed, who has been satisfied. Have you ever held the baby who has just who's just eaten, right? Who's who's milk drunk, right? And they're like this, like spread eagle, like couldn't care about anything in the world. They're they're happy, they're content, and it's the polar opposites, right? They couldn't be more different. David repeats this picture like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. David's still. We are hardly ever still. And how will we ever renounce pride and kill pride in our life, notice pride, if we are never Still. I grew up in Ontario. I've apologized for this before. I won't do it again. Uh, and, and I attended a camp uh, in the summertime. And I would go there, and, and in the mornings I would go out uh, to the lake and, uh, with a cup of coffee and my Bible. And I would sit there, and the lake, if you've ever seen this before, it's, it's amazing. The lake was like glass. Now, if, if you water ski, this is like prime time, right? But that's not what I'm talking about. The lake was like glass. It, it was serene, and it was such a contrast again from the chaos of the day to come. Like there'd be campers in there later on. There'd be boats on the water, uh, jet skis. Like like things would be happening. It'd be tumultuous, but there'd be this moment in the morning where the, where the water was like glass. At that time, if if a fish jumped out of the water, even like halfway across the lake, we'd notice that. I I, I could see that, right? If a if water bug kind of like was skipping along the top of it, how we could notice that. We, we could see that, right? If, if the wind picked up a little bit, we would see which direction it was even coming from. We could notice these things. How will we ever, ever notice pride in our hearts if we never take time to quiet the waters? When was the last time, if even for 15 minutes, for 15 minutes, you sat quietly, you made a note of each strong emotion you felt that day, and then asked this question Lord, in some way, is that strong emotion connected to my pride? Either pride offended, pride intimidated. Somehow, Lord, show me that. When was the last time we, we, we took stock of our careers, our, our work, and said, Lord, am I going forward here uh, full of unruly ambition or, or full of humble ambition? Now again, I'm, I'm a new parent, so I'm not saying these things naively. I'm not, I recognize we live busy lives, full lives. This will cost us something. We will have to say no to something or to say yes to, to quieting our hearts and assessing where there is pride here. I'm not naive to that. But don't mishear me. Diagnosing pride in our hearts, it, it isn't easily done. It isn't easily done. Uh, to go back to this, this metaphor and this picture of a weaned child, when was the last time your child was like easily stilled? That they were like, they were fussing over there and you said, child, be still. And they were like, like this. If you can do that, please tell me, write a book. I will buy that book from you. It doesn't work like that, Right? It it takes, you know, rubbing of the back and and feeding and and sort of burping. It takes a lot of work to to still a a fussy and discontent child. So, too, will this take work in our lives, in our heart, to create space for us to see our pride. Charles Spurgeon, he took a look at the psalm, and he taught on the psalm, and and, and he preached on the psalm, and, and he said this. Psalm 131 is one of the shortest Psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. We want uh, contentment and peace and inner quiet like this. We want it instantaneously. I want peace now. As paradoxical as it sounds, we must fight for quiet contentment. We must fight to remove the chaos and noise of our pride. We must fight to believe that our Father wants to meet us in our time of need. We must fight to become like little, weaned, content children attuned to the things of our heart. We've got to fight to do this. And if this sounds like it's all hard and depressing and sad, in part it is. The life of a pilgrim is a life of death and fighting. But as our text will show us next, it is also a life of resurrection hope. I want us to see this. Renouncing pride, finding contentment, and now verse 3, encouraging hope. Read verse 3 with me again. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I want to read that again. When you have three verses, you can do that, right? O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. The secret to to quiet contentment is not just renouncing pride in our life. We have to put our hope somewhere, right? I want to close this morning by looking at the who the what, and the when of our hope. The who, the what, and the when of our hope. And so first, the who of hope. And David writes, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Psalm 131 only makes sense. You should only listen to it if your hope is in the Lord. Is in the Lord. The renouncing of pride the getting out of the way, the humble ambition, these are all right and good responses to the God who is Lord, who is Yahweh. And the hope in the Lord then is to remember several things about the Lord. First, it is to remember that He alone is worthy of all of our worship. Now, Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, to this was the, the central uh, confessing, worshiping text of the people of God. They said this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And to hope in the Lord for David and for us is to acknowledge that He is the one and only true God who is worthy of our worship. But to hope in Yahweh is also to remember that He is holy. He's holy. When Yahweh speaks to Moses, do you remember that story? Speaks to Moses from the burning bush and instructs him to take off his sandals because the ground is holy. The ground is only holy because Yahweh is there. At Mount Sinai, do you remember that story? When the law is given to God's people and they're told not to touch the mountain because if they touch the mountain, the presence of the Lord is upon the mountain, you will die. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he meets the Lord in the temple. What does he cry? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Who is Yahweh that we should hope in Him? He is holy. He is holy. Not only is He separate from us, unblemished by our sins, He is the Holy One who, like He did with Isaiah touches our lips with a burning coal, and purifies us. He is wholly other. Where we fail, he succeeds. Where we create chaos and noise, he brings order. Where we lack insight, he sees clearly. Where we groan, where we mumble, he's faithful. Perhaps we've been slow in renouncing our pride because we haven't beheld the glorious truth of who God is. To borrow an image from the Apostle Paul, we think ourselves special, better, or pretty because comparatively, we are the prettiest pot on the shelf. All the while forgetting there is a potter who made us. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, alone worthy of our worship. The Lord who is holy. He is the who of our hope. But what are we to hope for? The what of our hope. The Lord who is the one true God is also the Lord who has acted and will act in history. Uh, in fact, the Lord acts precisely because, precisely for the reason that others would know that he is the Lord. Why does the Lord act? So that others will know him for who he truly is. And in Exodus fourteen four, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, hardens his heart. Why? So that the Lord and the Lord alone will get the glory. And so that the Egyptians will know that the one who delivers the Hebrews from slavery, he is the Lord. But it's not just for the Egyptians' benefit. In Deuteronomy 4.35, we're told that he acted in delivering his people so wonderfully, so mightily, that they also too might know that he is the Lord. Deuteronomy 4. To you it was shown, O people of God, that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Yes, the Lord acts for our good. And we can trust that but ultimately the Lord acts for his own glory that people might know that he is the Lord. See, Psalm 131 tells us sort of just generally in its brevity to, to hope in the Lord. And sometimes in that ambiguity of, you know, like hope in the Lord, we, we can lose it, right? Okay, uh, I'm, I'm hoping, right? Thankfully, before Psalm 31, 131 comes Psalm 130. Now remember, these psalms were likely sung one after the other as the people of God went up to Israel, so they went up to Jerusalem. They would sing these psalms, and in Psalm 130, we find particulars. So this morning, if you're wondering, what exactly should I hope in the Lord for? Psalm 130 is a great uh, text to show us particulars. And it will come up on the screen behind me. And they didn't bold and italicize them, but that's okay. I'm going to just pause and just stop on each thing that is inviting you to hope this morning. Let me pause. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Look at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. After walking the reader through this exercise, one author simply says, you will not go wrong if you fulfill Psalm 131.3 by living out Psalm 130. Who is our hope? The Lord in all his glory and splendor and might. He is our hope. And what is our hope? That the Lord who is glorious and wonderful and mighty will act for our good but ultimately for his glory. And now we come to the When? When are we to have this hope? Verse 3 again. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From this time forth and forevermore. It is hope for today, but it is also hope we will enjoy forever. Now, how is that possible? You know, maybe when we first read this text this morning, you you thought of someone in your life who, who sort of exemplifies this sort of quiet contentment. I know for myself, as I read through this text, I thought of people. People came to mind I thought, yeah, I think they exemplify this. I I think they live this out. But we need not go far down that road before we recognize that the people in our life ultimately fail us, right? The most content among us are still anxious at times. The most content among us are still angry at times. The most content among us still deal with pride in their lives. So who fulfills Psalm 131 perfectly? Who is Psalm 131 truly about? And if you've been in Sunday school before, you know the answer. It's Jesus. Psalm 131 is describing perfectly Jesus. And to see this, we go to Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, we have this famous scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, right before his crucifixion, Jesus entrusting himself to the Father like a weaned child. Look at Matthew 26, verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. It's not too much to ask of his disciples. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. But the disciples abandon him. They go to sleep. If ever Jesus needed their companionship, it is now. If ever Jesus had reason to be discontent, Lord, look at these students you've given me. This is my whole ministry. If the gospel is going to go forward, these are the people you want to entrust it to. These are the big A apostles. This is it. Jesus does not curse God for the ragtag students he's been given. Instead, we read in verse 42, Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, what? His disciples fail him. But don't miss this. Again, Jesus entrusts himself to the Father Verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying, what? The same words again. In other words, he entrusted himself to the Father again. It is because of the perfect, quiet contentment that Jesus had in the Father that he could walk forward in tra- childlike trust with him, even in the midst of betrayal and impending death. Without the perfect quiet contentment of Jesus, there is no cross. There is no crucifixion. There is no payment of sin that allows you and I to renounce our pride. Without the perfect, quiet contentment of Jesus, there is no resurrection, there is no return that allows you and I to have hope from this time forth and forevermore. So here's where our, our diagnostic has run its course. Right? We've run the program, the viruses have appeared, and perhaps there are, are more than you'd like to admit. Psalm 131 shows us our pride, and now how will we respond? Will we justify it in our heads and say, well, the proud that Jake's actually talking about is sort of that overtly boastful person, you know, like, like Kanye West or, or, or somebody who's like, you know, obviously proud, right? Or, or arrogant or, or jerk. And, and will we just pretend that he's not talking about us? Psalm 131 leaves no person unscathed. All of our motives are called into question. So don't be foolish. Will we be committed to the hard work of asking those diagnostic questions? And having asked them, sin laid bare, will we bring these sins to Jesus? Jesus, who was perfectly content all the way to the cross. Jesus, who was perfectly content that we might have hope today. Renouncing pride, finding contentment, encouraging hope. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit christcitychurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.